You are listening to an Enoch. 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 And welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library's Brown Lecture Series. I am Vivian Fisher, manager of this beautiful department. And it is my pleasure to honor and honor this evening to introduce our guest speaker, Gloria J. Brown Marshall, who is an associate professor of constitutional law at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. She teaches classes in constitutional law, race and the law, evidence and gender and justice. She is a civil rights attorney who litigated cases for Southern Poverty Law Center in Alabama, Community Legal Services in Philadelphia, and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. She addresses audiences nationally and internationally. Brown Marshall has spoken on issues of law and justice in Ghana, Rwanda, England, Wales, Canada, South Africa, and before the United Nations in Geneva. She is the author of many articles and several books, including her latest, The Voting, the Voting Rights War, The NAACP, and The Ongoing Struggle for Justice and Race, for Justice, and Race Law in American Society, 1607 to Present. Her forthcoming book is titled, She Took Justice, A Story About Black Women in the Law, From Warrior Queen Nzinga to Today's Activists. She is working also on a documentary film titled, She Took Justice to Accompany the Book that will be coming out hopefully in the near future. She is also the executive editor of the report on the status of black women and girls. She is a playwright of seven produced plays. Her most recent play is in progress, is titled Class, about the racial fight over the American dream. To add to her busy schedule, she is a syndicated columnist and legal commentary who covers the United States Supreme Court in major cases. She has been given com commentary on Supreme Court decisions, the Mueller investigation, police shootings, and constitutional questions on media such as CNN, MSNBC, CBS, WVON, as well as newspapers nationwide. She is a member of the Bar of the Supreme Court of the United States and a fellow of the American Bar Foundation. And she is a member of the board of ASALA, the Association for the Study of African-American Life History and History, which was founded by Carter G. Woodson, in which we celebrate in February Black History or African-American History Month. Moreover, she has been the recipient of several honors, including the Ida B. Wells Barnett Justice Award for her work with civil rights and women's justice issues and the Wiley College Women of Excellence in Law Award. She is a member of the Dramatist Guild, Mystery Writers of America, National Association of Black Journalists, Penn American Center, the American Bar Association, the National Bar Association, and the National Press Club. She recently completed the, the New York City Marathon and she is working on her first novel. Please join me in welcoming this very busy lady, Gloria Brown Marshall to the Inner Pratt Free Library. Thank you so much, and I truly appreciate um, your being here. 
Um, I appreciate Vivian for inviting me. And I wanted to, to thank family members who are actually here, members of Asala, former co-workers, and other members of the community. I truly appreciate the fact that you would come out. And I like the idea that we have a wide range of ages here, too, because even though we're talking about voting rights and I'm going to talk about history, the main focus of this talk today is, is my book, The Voting Rights War, but it's also the question, where do we as voters of color go from here? What is in the future for voters of color? And this is something very important, not just for voters of color, but also for our allies. And this issue of voting is one in which um, I, as a very proud African-American, and that's very important to say, because I am a very proud African-American. And as uh, someone who is versed, but can always be better versed in African-American history, we are worthy of good allies. And in this fight for voting rights, it's always been one in which we've had allies. Sometimes those allies have changed in different um, environments under different political situations, but allies indeed, we have, and most of the cases that have been brought up on the issue of voting rights have been brought by African-Americans or on behalf of African-Americans. But just because those cases are brought by African-Americans does not mean they only inure as far as the benefits go to African-Americans. The cases that we bring as a community then benefit the entire country. And that needs to be understood because very often attribution for the lives and livelihoods that have gone into the voting rights battle have been lost to time, but the benefits remain. And if there's no connection between the fights or the struggle for African by African Americans for voting rights, then it's almost as though these fell out of the sky. And they didn't. A very high price was paid. And so when I started writing my book, The Voting Rights War, one of the things that I thought about as a civil rights attorney, because my first book was Race, Law, and American Society, 1607 to present. And in that book, there's some, a book I began, I was teaching at that time at Vassar College, and I was a full-time civil rights attorney. And I was in a little um, motel. And it's, when I say motel, I should put the accent on the right syllable. I was in a motel. <laughs> so that shows you how small a town it was. <laughs> and, and I was, um, had just met with members of the community. And I was in this motel, when you're on the road, and I used to spend at least two weeks a month, maybe more, on the road, um, and you're there by yourself for the most part, you have time to think. And one of the things I thought about was how long have we, as an African-American community, been in this struggle? How long have we been doing this? And so I thought, well, let me go back to um, the 60s. And I started researching Supreme Court cases primarily. And then those cases would have precedent or other cases listed in them. And then I'd start researching those cases and it would take me back to the 30s. Then the next thing I know, I'm in the 1800s. And then the early 1800s and then slavery and then the 1700s. And that's why that book was Race, Law, and American Society, 1607 to present, starting the 1607 with the founding of the Jamestown Colony and going forward. So when I started working on my voting rights book, 
the rationale behind it was we had such excitement around the election of, of, of Barack Obama. And when I say we, I mean the Queen's we. So not everybody was excited. And that's why we're in a situation we're in right now, but that's later on. And, but we're in a situation as a form of backlash to the election of President Obama, black man in the White House. And so I had this feeling at the end of his first term, beginning of his second term, that people are going to want something this exciting again, and they're not going to get it. And because they're not going to get it, they're not going to vote. And what really motivated me in writing this book was the history of civil rights activism, but it was also the idea of how do we explain the people who lost their lives fighting for the right to vote to people who want to go into the voting booth and have a religious experience. They want something as spiritual, as, as fascinating, to feel a part of something as we did with the election of uh, President Barack Obama. And I was in Washington, D.C. for his first inauguration as well as a second. And anybody who remembers will tell that story years from now of just how exciting it was, wherever you were in the world, but especially to be out there um, in the cold, and it was the freezing cold, um, to watch him. But it was just an amazing experience. And I knew we weren't going to have that experience for the next election, and that people would therefore stay home. Or maybe the expectation had gotten so high with Barack Obama that if they were feeling disappointed, they would stay home. In essence, they would stay home, and stay home they did. And I felt bad. I felt like my little book was something that was supposed to help. Um, but it was difficult finding publishers because at the time they were still on the euphoria of post-race. So when you're writing a book about the struggle to vote, and people are in a post-race mood, they don't want to hear the bad news, that this is an ongoing fight. And how long has this ongoing fight been taking place? It's a fight, it's a battle. As a matter of fact, the voting rights war, the NAACP, and the ongoing struggle for justice, it, you know, I, I love my publisher, but the ongoing struggle for justice, I want it to be the, the battle, the fight to the end. I want it to be like more like, you know, let's make it like warlike because that's what it is. You're like, oh, you know, this ongoing struggle for justice. So that was a compromise. But in war, people die. They're injured, and that's what happened. And that's why this is called or titled The Voting Rights War. Because in it, I also speak to what the people I call the voting rights martyrs. And these are the people who are actually named who were murdered because they registered to vote, murdered because they were registering people to vote. People like Medgar Evers, we know, the college in, in New York City is Medgar Evers College, named after him. But forever, every Medgar Evers we know about, there probably are 100 people who were murdered or assaulted about whom we know nothing. So this becomes the issue. How do we recognize the struggle for voting rights, recognize the voting rights martyrs, and at the same time have some idea of how the law plays a role in all of this? Because the United States is the most litigious nation in the world, and I don't say this trying to be facetious. The United States has more lawyers, has more laws, and has more lawsuits than any other country on the planet. And yet, as someone who wants people to know more about their legal rights, we don't study the Constitution the way we should. We don't even read it. 
but we export it and the ideals of it around the world. One of the main components we talk about as American citizens all the time is freedom, this idea of freedom, the sense of freedom, the freedom that's in our Constitution, because religion doesn't bind us. We have an establishment clause that says this country has no established religion. Our exercise of religion, our beliefs, do not bind us because we have a free exercise clause that says that you can exercise whatever religion you want or none at all. Language does not bind us. We have hundreds of languages spoken in this country. So there is no official language, even though English is spoken primarily, but not always all places. What binds us is the U.S. Constitution. That's what it's meant to be, that binding component. And in this U.S. Constitution, we have this ideal of democracy. And democracy means that people are supposed to vote for their leaders and their leaders are supposed to represent them. At the core of this is the problem because the vote is the voice for our community, for our country. The idea is who is supposed to be the voice for the country and who is supposed to be responsible for the destiny of the country's future. This is what people have been killing over. They've been killing over this from the very beginning of the country. Who is supposed to control the destiny of this country, the destiny of their community? Who is supposed to have the voice and the vote? People have murdered for it, over it. People have put their lives on the line knowing they could be murdered for it. That is how serious the voting rights war is. And it's a no holds barred down and dirty fight, and it's not going to stop. It began before the country began and continues on. And so when I was trying to figure out how do I give a reader, anyone of interest, some idea of how ugly and bloody and nasty this fight has been and how long it's been going on, and the one organization that I saw that represented the core fight was the NAACP. They've been in it longest. They've lost the most members. They put in the most financial investment. And they've worked in all three strategies. And these three strategies, if you take away nothing else that will help you in the fight, litigation, legislation, and protest. These three things, litigation, legislation, and protest. Now, I had a chance two weeks ago to do a program through Princeton University. And it was on the voting rights war, my book. And he said, and so the, they summed it up this way, this trifecta that you have devised. It's like, oh, that sounds so Princeton. <laughs> I've got a trifecta. <laughs> it's like I've got to, got to write that down. Okay, <laughs> this trifecta. Litigation, legislation, protest. It sounds fancy with the trifecta, right? But it's very simple. You've got to have a litigation strategy. Who had this strategy? The person we know of most is Thurgood Marshall, but it was his mentor, Charles Hamilton Houston, who came up with this idea that we have to now look at what is, is holding us back under law and fight against it, come up with a litigation strategy that begins with the grassroots and goes all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. 
that litigation strategy has to be a part of a bigger piece, a legislative strategy. The legislative strategy is a strategy that we not only try to repeal the laws, challenge the laws, reverse the laws that are in place that are obstacles to voting, but also put in place laws that will assist people in their right to vote. That has to take place with the litigation strategy. There has to be litigation legislation and then protest. And many people have gotten disgruntled about protest. Protest doesn't work. People go out and protest. Protest works if it's part of a larger strategy. Protest by itself, I'm going to go out, I'm mad, I protest, and I go back home, it's done. It's not, that's not the way protest was used by the NAACP. Protest was part of the overarching strategy so that you protested the law or you were out to protest or lobby the legislative arm, that you were part of a protest in front of the building or because of a death or an assault on, on voting rights, so that protest played a part, a very pivotal part of my trifecta. Trifecta. I just like saying that word. It makes me sound so smart. Okay. <laughs> But it is this trifecta that was very successful until people started thinking they could use one piece here, another piece there, another piece there without having an overarching strategy. And without vision, the people perish. Without vision, the people perish. So even if you have this trifecta and no vision, then there's no substance to it. What is the destiny? Where is the future goal? So they would have a future goal. They would look at a particular part of an obstacle that was, in, that was undermining the right to vote of African Americans and other people of color. And then they would come up with a litigation strategy. They would fight on the legislative lobbying end. And they would protest around all those different issues until that particular part of the puzzle was solved. And then they would move on to the next. And do you know how brilliant this was? It was so brilliant that the conservative right is using it right now. They took it, stole it. I was in a, a Cato Institute meeting. Anybody from Cato Institute? Um, you're mean, nasty people. Because every time I've gone to a meeting, I've been treated horribly by Cato Institute. But I go anyway because I was there when I heard them say, and we borrowed this from the civil rights movement. I walked up to the attorney who had been speaking and I said, is it true that you use this strategy? And he said, yes. And then somebody came and ushered him away and, you know, and then treated me even worse until I just finally left. But I got what I needed, which is something I already knew. Because when I analyzed their strategy, I realized they were doing exactly that. They were doing what the trifecta we had put in place in the civil rights community. Now, here are two of the major issues with knowing this. One, we have an African-American community that will not give itself credit for having done, without bullets fired, without having a civil war a second time, to change, in, when it comes to voting, something that is crucial to this country, that was crucial enough for this country to kill over it and to change that dynamic in this country without killing people. That's what the civil rights community did. That is absolutely amazing. Because this is something that you see Syrians want right now. Can we vote for our leadership? Can we vote, can we have a democratic process? 
African-Americans did this. And because, and this is the second part, I'm going to have to say, I love my people, but sometimes, because no one went over and said, NAACP, you did a great job. You won this without shooting any of us, without having a second civil war, without you know, be, being a part of guerrilla warfare. You did this. You guys are a great group. So instead of the conservatives saying, we took this from the NAACP and these other, because this was a very successful way of making social change. They didn't do that. They just took it and pretended like they thought it up. And they were just geniuses. And that's why God is good. I happened to be in the room when I heard them say, because they had already had the speech. They didn't know I was going to be sitting on the front row. So this was a speech they already had planned. So not only do we have to understand that what we put in place through the NAACP and then expanded into other areas for voting rights was something that was so good that people used it against us and have been successful. But unless we can know how successful we were in doing this, how brilliant we were in implementing this strategy, then we don't know how to use it again to continue to get what we want. We throw it out because one piece doesn't work. I don't want to protest, protest doesn't work. Well, it wasn't meant, as I said before, to work by itself. You can have all these cases why litigation doesn't work because you've got fancy pants lawyers in the civil rights community who sit up on the Mount Everest and try to do this from the mountainous top down, and that's not how litigation worked. Litigation worked because the people had an issue and the lawyers went into the community because I'm old enough and young enough at the same time. I'm old enough to remember when I used to go out. Remember when I was in that hotel room? I was out in the community talking to the people about what was going on in their lives. And from what you heard from the people, you developed your litigation strategy. You didn't do it from on high in an office somewhere in a city. You went out to where the people were and you developed your strategy from there. So that's why litigation fell apart. Legislation, legislation was supposed to be about stopping poor legislation and creating good legislation. Unfortunately, and I have to say this, I don't know what legislation is being created because there's very little communication when somebody gets elected and goes to Washington or goes to their state government. They, I don't see them anymore. We have all these means of communication by the internet, but I never hear anything that's going on. And it's very difficult to reverse legislation that's already been enacted. Then you spend all your time out in the rain and the cold and the sleet trying to protest something that's already done. And the best you can do is nibble around the edges and try to chip away, and you still can't get to the heart of the beast until years later. But if our elected officials told us, oh, there's some bad legislation coming down that's really going to undermine our, our voting rights, we need to start working on these people now. That's what the NAACP used to do. They used to go in and lobby to stop bad legislation. Now none of us know when there's going to be bad legislation. We find out about it when we read it in the newspaper after it's passed. So when we look at this trifecta and we're like, oh, this doesn't work anymore, it's because we're not working it. We're not using it. But the other side is... And so we're going to have to remind ourselves of our brilliance and get our allies to remember our brilliance so that we can have allies who are going to walk with us 
not govern us. Now, let's go to the NAACP and we can have an idea of how all of this worked. But I want to do one quick thing, and that is I want to not just thank um, Vivian Fisher for having me here in Pratt Library, but this is part of the Brown and um, Eddie and Sylvia Brown lecture series. And this is something I think that has to be known for people, somebody um, who has money. And I'm, I mean like real money. I mean, I had gas money to get down here, but I'm talking about real, real money. Okay. <laughs> These people have real money. And they invested in having a lecture series to have people like me come down from New York and talk with you. That is just wonderful. And I think that's the other part that needs to happen, that people who are thinking, how can I be a part of it? I don't want to go to a little town in, in Alabama and sit in a motel. <laughs> and you don't have to do that. There are ways in which everybody can participate. And that's the other thing that I enjoyed about my research on studying the NAACP. They had people participating in all levels. Some people wrote checks. Some people brought in people to, to help in the community. Some people cooked. Some people, you know, made copies and passed them around. Some people offered their homes. But people communicated and they contributed in the best way they could. And that is what I think is also missing in the voting rights war, that you have civilians who need to play a role in this. Not everybody needs to be a foot soldier. Not everybody needs to be, you know, a member of the military in the war. But people can all contribute. And one way in which I remember this, and just keep this, how this, these dots are connected. I'm originally from the Midwest. And in the Midwest, I used to actually watch television. I was a precocious child. I don't know if you can tell that I didn't get over it. But <laughs> I used to watch Wall Street Week with Louis Rukhauser as a child growing up in Kansas City. Yeah, this little black girl used to watch Wall Street Week with Louis Rukhauser. And this was on PBS. I don't know why I did, but I did. And on Wall Street Week was Eddie Brown. So that's why I'm like, you just, you just never know how these things work out. That now I'm speaking through his lecture series here in Baltimore. So I just want to thank him, you know, out there you know, for, for this, for, for inspiring me as a child, because he would be the only black person on there. And this was a financial show, and he was like, he would be the one that I would see on there. And now here it is, these years later, and I'm here in his name. So, so then it goes, like, you don't know what your contribution may be. And that was the other part of the voting rights war. You don't know what part you play in it. As he sits here, how old are you? He sits here at 17. I don't know, years later, when he says, I was watching this very intelligent, beautiful woman talking about the voting rights war. <laughs> and she was a former civil rights attorney, and I want to be a civil rights attorney, or I want to what? You don't know. You don't, and that's what other, the other part about voting. You don't know if you put your vote in there. People want to see something instant happen. Well, I voted for so-and-so, and they didn't win. So therefore, I'm not going to vote again. 
Uh, what did I get out of it? Voting is one of these things where it's a choice, it's, it's one voice of many, and every, every now and then you have something really tight like you see in certain races nationally where maybe 200 votes separated the winner from the loser. But most often with votes, you put yours in and then you just have to see what happens. That's how voting works. It's a, it's, a, it's a part of faith, and you can say, oh, well, you know, um, I don't trust the voting system. My vote doesn't really matter. And, you know, but you have to just say, I am investing in the system. Now, here's what I want to say very quickly about what does the future hold for voters of color. If we look at what's going on right now, we'll see that gerrymandering is a major issue. Gerrymandering is not a new issue. Gerrymandering has been around for hundreds of years. It started off in the 1700s. That's where the, you we only say it started. That's where they had the word. That there was a, um, a, a voting district that looked like a salamander that a person named Jerry had actually put together in a political process to, so that they could, you know, get their political advantage. And because a salamander-made district looked so bizarrely biased, they started saying, based on Jerry, the Salamandering district that Jerry put together, gerrymandering. So that's how we get the word gerrymander. When we have a district that looks so just crazy, and you know it's put together based on political partisanship. So this is not new. This, this, the word came up in the 1700s. So that's how long there's been gerrymandering going on. There was racial gerrymandering. Racial gerrymandering for the case in the Gomillion versus Lightfoot in, in Tuskegee, Alabama. And I lived in Montgomery, Alabama for a short time. Tuskegee is a very, very small farm town, but the districts were gerrymandered in a way, even though it was majority black, there was no district that was majority black. They would always figure out a way that no black person would ever have enough political power to, put ele to elect a black person. This was a case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And they said, oh, you can't do this. You know, racially biased gerrymandering. Okay, then let's go forward to the gerrymandering we're dealing with right now. And that gerrymandering is gerrymandering based on political partisanship. We have divided up basically into um, Republicans and Democrats. And the gerrymandering now is, um, are the Democrats, you know this better than I do, in Maryland, making districts that are partisan to the Democrats. Republicans say, yes, they are. The 6th District is terrible, what they've done. This case is before the U.S. Supreme Court, and it has to be decided whether or not blatant political gerrymandering is unconstitutional. And they're saying it's a First Amendment issue because you can't have your voice if your voice is silenced based on the gerrymandering of a district. So they've come up with a lot, you know, just like, oh, that's, well, that sounds good, yeah. You know, First Amendment argument. Okay, so then you go to another state, and you look at it in Wisconsin, where they have now used this technology to the point where they can put in programs that come up with any type of district, that the computer does it. It's like, oh, but the computer didn't, and computer doesn't care about race. This is what the computer did. Well, someone programmed the computer, right? <laughs> Put in certain variables, and we came up with this district. And, you know, the computer didn't sneak around at night and do this itself. 
you know, this is not the sci-fi channel. So, so now we have this idea of, you know, the acceptability of partisanship. How acceptable can partisanship do, be? Because we know it's going to exist. It's always existed. How much can it exist? Okay, that's one layer. But then go down another layer. Here's where the race comes in. And these are the issues that have been part of the Supreme Court cases that make up the Voting Rights War Book. This is just one area. They know that the Democratic Party is made up primarily of working class people and people of color. So when they're saying, oh, this is just Democrat and Republican, well, they know that the Republican Party is made up primarily of whites and conservatives. So this is the underlining argument well, this is, we're, this is just about being Republican or Democrat. No, if you're, if you're limiting the Democratic vote, then you're limiting the vote of working class people and people of color. That's what you're really doing. So this has been a strong argument that's underlining this. And if you have a chance to listen to Supreme Court cases, and I try to do this. I was actually listening to the Supreme Court cases on the drive down here. I, that's, I don't have a social life. So basically, that's, that's, not, that's what I do. Other people do other things, go to clubs. I listen to U.S. Supreme Court cases. But if you have a chance to listen to them, you will hear these debates because they're available to you on the website. The U.S. Supreme Court actually has audio of its cases. If you have a chance, listen to the audio of the U.S. Supreme Court cases on voting rights, and you will, you will hear them specifically say, you know, well, this is gerrymandering. Well, you know, court, tell us how far we can go. Because they're basically saying, we're going to go as far as we want until you stop us. It's like the old scary, going to sci-fi, stop me before I kill again because I am going to do everything that's going to make my party win. And if that means undermining these people's right to vote, but it's not based on race, it's based on political party. Because they know now they can't have racial gerrymandering even though they used to. So things become symbolic for something else. Overstuffing districts. Here, okay, I'm just gonna come up with this district. Say this district X. This district X is majority people of color. That means they're gonna be majority Democratic voting. We're not gonna win as Republicans District X. So let's not even put any money toward trying to win that, that district. But what we're gonna do is, we're going to expand District X, we're gonna gerrymander it so that it includes these other people of color so that they won't be influencing District Y and Z. So we'll pack this district with all the black people and other people of color we can, make it one big super district because we're going to lose it anyway. That way we don't take the chance of having these people of color, you know, vote us out of these other two districts. We'll pack them all. That went before the U.S. Supreme Court. And I remember being in the court and hearing Justice Kagan saying, aren't you really just packing the district? This, that? Oh, no, no, we just we drew the line that way. So these are the things that you're actually hearing when you listen to these cases. Well, somebody drew the line. Why do you draw the line here instead of here? And there's, well, this is where the line was that we drew. <laughs> so it becomes very interesting listening to these arguments. And these arguments are arguments that Today, you can hear them outright and, and, and understand 
that you know they're talking about political process but a hundred years ago they they basically said we're talking about race so I'm going to do a little bit of history and I'm going to go through about 200 years 250 in about four and a half minutes okay all right here we go the Jamestown colony I said was founded in 1607 in 1619, 20 Africans arrived in that colony. 20 Africans arrived in 1619. This colony was falling to pieces. These 20 Africans arrived and basically saved the colony in 1619. The first African couple, Mary and Anthony Johnson, and these Africans were from Angola. The first African couple married and had land and servants of their own in the 1600s. Mary and Anthony Johnson. And what I like to tell my students, you write on the side things that the professor says that I don't really believe I'll look up later. Okay, you can put that down, that's fine. Okay, Mary and Anthony Johnson. No one talks about Mary and Anthony Johnson having land, white and black servants of their own. Because, because they had land, and that was the crucial key to be able to vote and be a lawmaker, one had to have land. They had land, and what they did was change the law that even though they had land, they said, oh, but you're African descent, so therefore you're going to be considered aliens, and you can't own land, and you must leave the Virginia colony. Because they were on the precipice of political power. Now, this is going to repeat itself time and time again. But remember Mary and Anthony Johnson, what happened? They were there. It's like, what qualifications do we need to vote? What qualifications do we need to participate politically? Oh, own land, have, have certain property. Okay, we have those things. Be an established member of society. Oh, we are. We do this thing. Okay, um, you're almost there. Mm, we just changed the law. You're not going to make it. Bye. This is what keeps happening throughout American history. So by the time we get to 1870, now the war, Civil War has ended, 1865, the 13th Amendment is passed, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery except as punishment for a crime, except as punishment for a crime. That triggers mass incarceration. Now, if someone is incarcerated, you're not fit to vote. So you're free, it triggers mass incarceration. So now people of African descent who are now free, going about their lives, trying to rebuild, do all these things, you know, are now snatched off the street, you know, um, charged with these bogus crimes, loitering, stealing a pig after midnight. They have these things called the black code. And these crimes now, once the person goes to prison, in prison they are worked for free in the convict lease system. If you have a chance to see the film Slavery by Another Name, you really should. It shows you how this started in 1865 and continued until 1944, the convict lease system or peonage. But what it did as far as their right to vote, when they're in prison, they can't vote. When they get out, they no longer are qualified to vote because they're no longer of good character. Now you see that happening today. People with a felony conviction, you can't vote while you're incarcerated, and once you get out, you lose your right to vote for life because you no longer have the character to vote because you have a felony conviction. 
Then we have 1870, black men received the right to vote. And they did. The first black U.S. senator was in 1870, Hiram Revels. Frederick Douglass in 1873 was on the ballot as U.S. vice president on the equal rights um, ticket with a woman, Victoria Woodhull, as president. In the 1870s, there were over 4,000 black politicians in the 1870s and 1880s. Black people in state government, black U.S. representatives, black U.S. senators, all of these people in these offices. And then they said, oh, we're going to wipe history clean that these people ever existed. We had a black president. They said, we're going to wipe history clean that he ever existed. Doesn't it feel that way? That's why I'm telling you what is being repeated is just history. What is the future for the voters of color? Look at history. By 1896, the Plessy versus Ferguson decision, that's the decision that segregated the whole country. In 1896, in Louisiana, where this case initiated, there were 130,000 registered black voters. In 1896, the year of this Ferguson decision, by 1900, there were less than 6,000. Less than 6,000. Four years later, less than 6,000 after this decision. And in 1890, people go, oh, that's so long ago. They came up with the Mississippi plan. And they say, and it's quoted in my book, they use the N-word. They're like, oh, you know, this isn't about people cheating. They ever said the same thing. Oh, you know, we've got voter fraud, voter fraud. 1890, voter fraud. Then this one politician, this white politician comes out and says, this isn't about voter fraud. This is about stopping the N-word from voting. They were very clear. That's why they came up with the literacy test, the, ground, the grandfather clause, and poll taxes. They said it in 1890. We're going to use litigation, legislation, to stop these people from voting. Because even then, the African-American vote could change the outcome of an election. That's why I say to the black community, have you forgotten your power? Do you need somebody to remind you of just how powerful you are. Because the other people are gonna come up, y'all some powerful folk, powerful, powerful folk. And because nobody's walking over there going, y'all some powerful folk, you don't know your power. History shows your power. People will not go out and do these things to people who are not powerful. So now as we go through, the litigation becomes, how do we stop segregation? It was something called the whites-only primary. The whites-only primary. There was a time in this country where only white people could vote in the primary. They said, oh, you can vote in the general election, black people, if you want to, but not in the primary, because it's a club. And here's the club. And these cases are Democratic cases. Why? Because Lincoln was a Republican. And when Lincoln freed the slaves, so to speak, the South said, we hate Republicans. We're going to be Democrats, or Dixiecrats, they call themselves. That's how the South became Democratic. It's like, what? The South became Democratic? Yes, the whole South became Democratic in a protest to Lincoln being a Republican. Then little by little, they switched back to the Republican Party because the Democratic social programs of Franklin Delano Roosevelt 
because Harry Truman desegregated the military, because of John Kennedy, and then, of course, Johnson, Lyndon Baines Johnson. What did he do? He signed the Voting Rights Act, which required states to tell the federal government if they were going to try to enact a law to make a voting rights law to make sure that law didn't undermine the rights of people of color to vote. So now we go forward to 2013. In 2013, Shelby County, Alabama says, why are we having to deal with this pre-clearance going to the federal government to ask them whether or not our laws are going to be discriminatory? This is not right. States' rights. States' rights. Oh, it's states' rights, but also you had to go to a black man, Eric Holder, and ask that black man whether or not your Alabama laws were discriminatory. And that was too much. So by the end of June 2013, they gutted the Voting Rights Act, and they took out the preclearance provision that said you had to go to the federal government to ask them before you could pass a law. And within days, they started photo ID laws. Oh, because of voter, voter fraud, voter fraud. That's why I said there's nothing new under the sun. All these different things have been tried before. And it should be seen for what they are. You could say, oh, this is political, but then right beneath the surface, the two cases before the Supreme Court right now, one deals with whether or not you have a right not to vote. Usted, H-U-S-T-E-D versus A. Philip Randolph. Look at this, A. Philip Randolph. Who was A. Philip Randolph? A. Philip Randolph, of course you know, the, you know, who started the union for the railroad, the black men working on the railroad. And then he's also the person who was part of the foundation of the biggest protest at that time in national history the March on Washington in 1963. See how these things all fit together? Now they have an A. Philip Randolph Institute, and so that's part of this case because there, this man didn't vote. And they said, well, you didn't vote. You got purged from the system. So now that's what they're doing, purging people from the system, figuring out ways to get rid of people's right to vote because then they call it a civil death, that you lose your right to vote for life, a civil death that you don't have any voice in your community. You lose it based on felony conviction. But then again, we go to, where's the disparity in the criminal justice system? Oh, brown and black people. Once again, right beneath the surface, we have a discriminatory criminal justice system that's locking up brown and black people. Oh, isn't that just like the convict lease system that we had right after slavery ended? All these things keep repeating themselves. And some people go like, oh, this is so terrible. Why isn't life fair? And I have to ask you, is life fair anywhere else? This is earth. This is not heaven. Life is going to be very fair in heaven. In heaven, I'm telling you, everybody's going to be able to vote. <laughs> but right here on earth, you're going to have to fight to vote. You're going to have to fight. And then I want, to, I want to end with two more examples. One is the female vote. Black women have the highest rate of political participation of any group. Black women. 97% of registered black women voters vote. 
97%. Higher rate than white women, higher rate than white men, black women. Once again, black women, are you realizing your political power? Don't be a cheap political date. Get something for that vote, seriously. Oh, you like my vote, do you? <laughs> What's she going to give me for it? You know, it's like, I like shiny things. Okay. It's like, what are you going to get for that political power? They can't just take it and you get nothing. That's not the way politics works. And then once the 19th Amendment was passed and all women received the right to vote, that's when black women started to get arrested. That's when they started to be um, terrorized. And I want to give you, like from the NAACP archives and Library of Congress, um, here's, this is December 6, 1920. The 19th Amendment was ratified in 1920. So this is the end of that same year. In this letter to the NAACP office, I am writing to inform you of a case of intimidation that happened to me. I live in River Junction, registered in the 9th Precinct, but was asked to leave before it was time to vote. On Thursday, October 14th, Mr. A.L. Wilson and the deputy sheriff came to my house and told me that I was the leader of the colored people in the effort to have colored women register to vote. I am secretary of the Harding and Coolidge Club in my home, and I was active in all things that tend to the uplift of my people. On the following Thursday, which was October the 21st, Dr. B.F. Bond and the sheriff of that county, Mr. Gregory, came to me and further threatened me. On the 28th, Mr. Heyman Dolan and Mr. Creamer, a mill owner, and Mr. Newberry came and told me as there have never been a lynching in that part, they thought it well that I should leave at once to be sure of my life. Registering black women to vote when they had just received the right to vote that year. When we talk about the voting rights war, there have been so many casualties, so many people who have lost their lives knowingly going into battle. And one person I end my book with I think is so important. And this is Ferdinand, Vernon Ferdinand Dahmer. And what makes him so important is D-A-H-M-E-R, is that he knew his life was probably going to be lost, or I should say taken, just for registering to vote. And I write here, a lesson for all American citizens can be learned from voting rights activist Vernon Ferdinand Dahmer. This Mississippi NAACP leader lost his life to a Klansman's firebomb thrown into his home. He accepted the danger and sacrifices, giving the ultimate sacrifice, because he understood the far-reaching importance of his work. Damer chose these words for his tombstone. If you don't vote, you don't count. Thank you. Now there's this effort to allow people to vote who are on probation and parole. And in Virginia, you know, the, the governor there recognized that people who had lost their right to vote because they had a felony conviction for life, there are only six countries that do this. This is not usual at all. And a country that says American exceptionalism, 
this democracy, and yet we don't want our own citizens to vote? When there is minuscule evidence of voter fraud, the same way in 1890, the way it is now, minuscule evidence. Basically, in 1890, the man came out and said, we just don't want certain people to vote. And that's the way it is right now. They just don't want certain people to vote because they know they're probably going to vote Democratic and by the you know 21st century Democrats. And they want to stop those people from having their political power. And so going back to that is trying to figure out how we can get people the right to vote. And I, I want to say this one last thing. People have heard about the three-fifths rule. Yes, the three-fifths rule. The three-fifths rule is the rule that's in the Constitution that said that black people were counted as three-fifths of a person. It's in the Constitution. If you have a chance to read the Constitution, and I don't have my little constitutions here. I actually developed the Constitution. Um, that's, that's, that's the U.S. Constitution, but I highlight the places in the Constitution that refer to people of color. So you can understand. And I say that the Constitution was a document that talked about the structure for government, you know, the three branches of government, what the powers of Congress and the president would be, et cetera. But these cases brought prim primarily on behalf of or by African-Americans put the conscience in the Constitution. It was those cases, hundreds upon hundreds of those cases that put the conscience in the Constitution because it then used the Constitution to expand these rights in it that had been undetermined prior to this. And it's through those cases that you now have expanded protections for everyone. Because as I said before, just because a case is brought by or behalf of African Americans doesn't mean that the benefit inures just to them. It's to everyone. So I want you to actually be more thoughtful when it comes to the contribution of African Americans. And even when I, especially the civil rights contributions of African Americans and those who work on behalf of African Americans. But we also have to do something, this is something that happens, amnesia, political amnesia. People get in office and we have political amnesia, they forget who put them in office until it's time to be reelected. Then they start showing up in synagogues and churches all over town and talking good talk and then they disappear again. You know, that's something that we have to be responsible for saying, wait a minute, not only do I want you to tell me when bad legislation is coming along, I want you to communicate with me more than just a press release and I'm very disturbed about this because I get these press releases and that's it. So that's a one-way conversation. That's not a communication back and forth with my elected officials. If your check is clearing, I should have a voice. Okay, I should have a voice in what's going on. And that voice now, the second part is going back to this, what are we doing for our people who have felony convictions? who are on probation and parole, because this is the other stick they're using to stop people from voting, putting them on parole or probation for years upon years upon years. So then they're free, they're not locked up, but they still are suffering a civil death because they don't have a voice. They're not allowed to participate fully in society. They've paid their debt, but they've now made parole and probation, sometimes five and 10, 20 years. Can you imagine the pressure of being on probation to have to watch everything you do for 5, 10 to 20 years and you still can't vote for the people who created the laws who did this? 
So we need to have a voice for those people who are incarcerated because under the three-fifths rule during slavery, which really gets me, they counted slaves as three-fifths of a person to determine political power. When they looked at the district and to see what the population would be, it's like South Carolina, some of the population, was half of the population in some places was African. So if half the population is African, how do you count these people when you decide how many representatives should come from that district? Is it based on the white population? Is it based on the black population? What, how do you, so they said, we're gonna base it on the white population as a whole, and then three-fifths of all the black people in the population. And that's how they're going to determine the number of US representatives to Congress. Now, here's what gets me. Maybe I'm wrong. Somebody can tell me. It's all right. It's Q&A. <laughs> Do you think any of these politicians ever went to their offices and said, what do those slaves need? Because remember, they're representing them. What are the interests of the slave that we need to take into account? No, they just use them for political power. That's it. And that's what's happening right now with the incarcerated. It's not. It's not. I mean, that's, that's the problem. It's not moral. It's not, but it's quite lawful. It's the same way as the three-fifths rule. So all these little towns get more political power. They get more federal state funding in their little town because the jail is located there or the prison is located there, and they count the in incarcerated in the population. So just like with the three-fifths rule, do you think that these politicians are going, how can I better serve the incarcerated? Of course not. They're using them for own political exp expediency, but they're not thinking about, they're not caring about them. They're not, they're not really representing them in any other way outside of using their brown, black, and working class white bodies for their own political power. Now, here's something that has happened in New York State. They've actually, and they call this prison gerrymandering, where the prisons are gerrymandered into certain districts for political power. I told you, Jeremy, all of these things are just happening again and again, and it just really depends. That's why if you, once you read the book, you'll see how these things are happening over time, and it will then arm you, going back to the war dynamic, arm you for whatever future thing they come up with, because it's gonna fall within these basic categories. It's gonna be the same thing, I mean, they're gonna switch it around a little bit. So what they said was that they actually went to the politicians who had these districts and said, these people should be counted in their home districts. So that's what they did in New York State. And that's what we can do. Go to these politicians and say, you know, since you're really not representing the interests of these people, politically they should be counted in their home districts. So that's the next move that people can make when it comes to political or prison gerrymandering. The photo ID issue is a tough one because they're saying you have to have a photo ID to vote in certain states, and that's because states determine the qualifications to vote. As long as they're not racial on their face. But then you go down a level, and what you see is they look for the type of identification that the people of color don't have, and that's what they require. Then they close the places where you get that identification. And that's what they did in a lot of states. Like, they had 20 before they passed the law. They closed, and now it's like five. Then they have the hours between, like, nine and four when people are at work. 
and they asked for government ID in order to get government ID. So I know I have a birth certificate. I'm here, so I know I was born. However, I don't know where the birth certificate is. I think it's in my sock drawer. I'm not sure. Because most citizens don't even remember where their vote birth certificates are unless something comes up and you need it. And you go like, yeah, where, where did I put that? And I have my important document box. It must be in there, but you haven't checked it in a while. You just assume it's in there. And we don't have a registry of citizens. And they, people think that we do, but we don't, which is a good thing. There's no 1-800-CITIZEN. You dial a number. I just wanted to make sure that you know I'm a citizen. Okay, so there is no 1-800-CITIZEN. Think about it. So when you have to prove you're a citizen, what government ID do you have? Well, I have a driver's license. Where in certain states they give driver's license to people who aren't citizens. You don't, the driver's license doesn't mean you're a citizen. It means you can drive in that state. So when you start thinking about how people gather as they did in 1890 and figure out how to undermine another group's right to vote because they know that we can change the outcome of an election. They've always known this. So we should not ever think our vote doesn't count. As Vernon Dammer said, the vote does. And I think about the fact in that firebomb, he didn't die right away. He lingered with burns over all of his body. And it not at one time does anybody write about him saying he wished he hadn't done it. We don't have to go through all that for our right to vote. All we have to do is do it, understand that our vote is our voice, our voice speaks to the destiny of our community in our country and to understand how important that is and how many people who have given up their lives and livelihoods to make sure that happens. And who are we to stand in the way of the investment they've already made? Thank you.